Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. doing a zoom talk last week when this question popped up in the chat room Want to know what the question was sure what about men don't they get anxious don't they get depressed that's what we get asked of course they do in fact almost 30 percent of our anxiety sisterhood are actually anxiety brothers Uh, we probably should just admit that we consider sisterhood to be something of all genders (laughs) it just it's catchy it's catchier than than anxiety community and but you can be really, both genders and be a any gender. Any gender, yes. Right. Along the continuum, yes. So here's some facts for you. According to a poll of 21,000 American men by researchers at the National Center for Health Statistics, nearly one in 10 men reported experiencing some form of anxiety or depression. But half of those, less than half of those men sought treatment. Another statistic, men die by suicide three and a half times more often than women. And another really interesting statistic is that in a recent Today Show survey of 1,000 men, 49% said they felt more depressed than they would even admit to the people that are close to them in their lives. And 45% believed that mental health issues could be solved on their own without any professional intervention. So clearly men get anxious and they get depressed, but in general, they're just not as willing to talk about it as women are. And that is why we are really excited to talk to one of our guests today. You probably know him for his acting career. He was in big movies such as Risky Business, Memento, The Matrix. He won an Emmy for his role in Sopranos. But Joey Pantoliano is focusing on his role as a mental health advocate who is trying to stamp out the stigma, shame, and discrimination which accompanies mental health disorders, or as he calls it, dis-ease. He wrote two best-selling memoirs and produced an award-winning documentary called No Kidding, Me Too which spotlights several people on their struggles with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and more. And by the way, it's such a good film. You can watch it on Amazon or iTunes. We'll put the link in our show notes. We really encourage you to check it out. And now as a follow-up, Joey and his daughter, Daniela, who is also a writer, director, and filmmaker, have launched a podcast in which they host candid, unfiltered conversations with familiar names in the entertainment and mental health spaces. Their goal is to open up the discussion about emotional illness and empower their listeners. And we are just so lucky to have this father-daughter team here with us today. Please help us welcome Joey and Danny Pantoliano. Yay! Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Sorry for such a long introduction, but you guys are so talented and there's so much to say. Good job with the intro. I hope we get that good. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are great. All right, let's jump right in. So, Joey, you've you've struggled with mental health issues. We don't like to call it mental health either. We often call it brain health. Or brain um, illness, yeah. Or brain illness. But you've struggled with these kind of issues for many years. And we just wanted to hear a bit about your own story, your own experience, looking back when this started and and what it's been like as a man. Around 2007 is when I unraveled. But as I recall through 
therapy and, and delving into what was going on with me, I came crumbling down and I think it began on 9-11. The dust from the towers uh, kicked up all of this emotional unresolved dust of my past that I could no longer get out of my head. So I was traumatized with all of these thoughts and, and this past experiences that were so evasive that they were living inside my head even when I didn't want them to. And uh, around that time, I was working on The Sopranos and we were doing a scene in a makeshift steam room with Peter Rieger, Jimmy Gandolfini and I were in this makeshift you know, set piece. Uh, it wasn't a real steam room, but they, they were using steam pipes to give to create the illusion, this is 20 years ago, now you could CGI it. But I walked by one during a break uh, and I was, I was in a towel, underwear, no shoes. And I, and I walked into one of those pipes and I burnt my ankle really badly, like first degree burns. And they brought a, a doctor onto the set and he gave me a prescription for Vicodin or Percocet, one of those things, uh, you know, painkillers. And, and, uh, and it spoke to me for the first time. I'd been on painkillers throughout my lifetime for wisdom teeth or back issues, but it, it was never something that I liked. But this time it kind of put a bounce in my step. And that began a, a journey that created a dependency uh, to the point where I was so numb and so dependent uh, on this drug that I I didn't even know that it was heroin, an opioid, you know, uh, it's just a lot of, a lot of feel good in there uh, that stops feeling good. You become dependent on it and then you don't even get a, you don't even get the feeling. So I just wanted to die and I didn't know why. Uh, My wildest dreams were starting to come true. And I couldn't understand why I didn't want to live anymore. I gone to do a movie called Canvas with Marcia Gay Harden based on a true story that Joe Greco wrote. He directed it. And when I came home, I, I had made some discoveries and um, the character Marcia Gay was playing reminded me of my mom. And I was tormented with the idea because I always thought my mom was unwilling to get better. She she loved being miserable. And I was always disappointed by her unwillingness to be happy. And then I thought, well, maybe it wasn't willful. Maybe it was some kind of mental disease. And I uh, came home and I went to see my doctor because I, I, I had to get physical. I had a his, history of heart disease in my family and they had me on statins which is not uncommon. And he said, how are you doing otherwise? And I said, well, I feel like I'm walking through a quicksand. I, I, like, I just feel like uh, in the, stuck in this fog. And he said, well, I, you know, that's not my specialty. And he gave me three psychiatrists to 
reach out to and talk to them. And I found this guy that I liked. And that's where the journey began. And so everything started falling away. You know, mm. and it came to the conclusion that I just wanted to die. And uh, I didn't think it was ever going to get better. Had you experienced any form of depression before that that you can remember? Yeah, I always felt that way. It didn't get to the point where I was crippled by it. And, uh, you know, looking back, I had discovered jogging in high school. And that turned out to, to be the way I was medicating my disease. What I, what I call my seven deadly symptoms. You know, looking back, that food was the first drug of choice that I went to. By the time I was 10, 11, I, I put on 100 pounds because I was eating my feelings away. I hit puberty and I discovered masturbation. I wanted girls to like me. I thought if I had a girlfriend, I'd feel better. So I, I thought, well, because I'm fat, girls don't like me. So I'm going to stop eating so that I can lose the weight and then they'll like me and then I'll be happy. So it was always about then I'll be happy. Mm. So success. Then I discovered, well, I am miserable being poor. I miss, my family's miserable. All my parents do is fight about money and, and they were degenerate gamblers. In my mind, if I could if I could get out of there, if I could get out of Hoboken, if I could get inside my mother's 12 inch black and white television, like the other guys on our block, like Frank Sinatra, in that community, uh, the only way to get ahead was education, athletics, entertainment or politics. Mm. And uh, I was on the stupid, lazy and crazy list because we didn't have the benefit of dyslexia or attention deficit disorder. I was just stupid. I got put into the sixes where they would just pass. If you didn't cause any trouble, you'd get promoted out. So when I graduated high school, I had a third grade reading level. So I knew that college wasn't in my future, but maybe entertainment, maybe through that, I could get out and become successful. Did I answer your question? Really? You did. And, and, you did. and of course, so many more questions come to mind. Uh, and, then, and then when you talked about the undiagnosed dyslexia and ADHD, I, I think a lot of members of our community have experienced that that are closer to our age as opposed to Danny's age. When, well, when Daniela was diagnosed is when I found out that I had it. Right. Yes. We talk about dyslexia and ADHD a lot. And, and in part because in New York now, in New Jersey and in other places, there's really, really great treatments. Hopefully that Danny got some of them and, and can really change things. But now that I live in the Midwest, I have friends from Kentucky and from Indiana who've moved here to Columbus, Ohio, where I am, because in their states still, when their kids right now had dyslexia or had ADHD, they were told, oh, it's because you're too permissive. If you just hit him, you know, the ADHD would go away. Or there's no such thing as dyslexia. It's all just made up. I kind of agree with that. I'd like to smack some of my kids around. <laughs> Danny is looking at, yeah. Danny's not looking too bruised. Yeah, I know. She doesn't look too bruised. So, I mean, I, I think that for a lot of people, the dyslexia and ADHD starts a trajectory of feeling less than yes. somehow. And that feeling... Danny's nodding her head. So maybe you've experienced that, Danny? Yeah, it's actually something in the past year when I've gone back to therapy, I've like kept going back to this feeling I had in school 
when like, I just would feel like I wouldn't get things. So I'd feel stupid, but then I didn't want to ask for help. So I would pretend everything was fine. You know, I would, or I'd like find a friend in the class and like tether myself to them and like make them a really good friend of mine so that they would help me with my projects and like laughing at my own dyslexia. Like, cause if I like spelled something and I showed it to a friend and they would be like, what the heck is that word? Oh my God. And be like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Like can't spell and just like laugh it off. I, I actually remember once I had a teacher, not a great teacher because we had a vocab test and we, it was vocab. So it wasn't spelling. We did this test and I turned mine in and my teacher looked at it and the, like half the words were really spelled wrong. Cause I spelled how it sounds, not how it is. And he showed it to the class and laughed at it. Oh God. And I just laughed with him. Yeah. You feel totally less than, and I went to one of the best public schools for dyslexia and like ADHD. They get praised all the time. And I would be petrified whenever we had to read out loud in class, there was this dumb game popcorn but it would make sure everyone was paying attention because you'd be reading and like mid-sentence, someone could be like popcorn Danny and I'd have to pick it up. And I would scour the book and ask anyone I felt comfortable with next to me, like, is that how you say that word? And I would be like, my body would be warm and I'd be like shaking. If I'd be anxious, you were on high alert. And you had to be because you you could get a surprise attack. Yeah, exactly. From a teacher who means well, probably. So you were dealing with your own dyslexia and I don't really know the timeline of all this, but were you aware that your dad was struggling too? I don't think I was aware of why he was the way he was until he was aware of it. And um, how old were you then? Like, do you I think? think I was in high school, right, Dad? Like, I, I was like a freshman, sophomore, I think, is when like the documentary like was being made and came out. But I actually have a very hard time remembering a lot of things a lot of therapists say that for multiple reasons, um, when you live with like depression, you're living so intensely in all the moments that you have that your brain doesn't even try to remember things. Yes. Um, And also like a coping mechanism. Yes. My brain protecting me. Hazy. Everything becomes hazy. Yeah. Really hazy. And like, I just won't remember things like it's still to this day. My memory sucks. I remember just sometimes being a little afraid of dad and like nervous when he came home. Cause you didn't know what dad you were going to get. And I, I was the, the, the kid that got the best dad mostly, you know, we always joke I'm his favorite, but I think that's cause I, from like day one, just like knew how to handle him and take care of him. Mm. And that's something I talk about my therapist a lot too, that I took on the role of a parent sometimes where mm-hmm. I would like comfort and take care of my parents, mm-hmm. but I didn't know I didn't know any why. I just knew sometimes he might get really, really mad if I didn't clean my room. And sometimes it'd be totally fine. <laughs> so, When did you and your dad start having the conversation about mental health and about the emotional dis-ease that he had experienced that you were, in other words, where, when were you able to come together and sort of talk to each other about it? I think honestly, the second he got diagnosed like he from day one was really open and honest with all of us about everything and I remember we went on a walk once and this part's a little hazy but we went I don't remember when it was again high school and we went on a walk just him and I and he like told me like everything he had done like things you don't necessarily want to hear about your dad in regards to you know your mom don't read his memoirs (laughs) yeah yeah exactly exactly I was glad we had that conversation 
because you were honest, but it was also very like, well, what do I do with that? Because like, you're still my dad and I love you. But like, that's hard to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are things that happen when you're very anxious or very depressed. This illness has consequences in our lives, you know, whatever they are. And on our whole family. There was anxious air in my house growing up. And I think it's, we know now that actually we have biological changes that go from generation to generation. We know about epigenetics now, that it's not just we learn a certain way of coping, but we actually pass down different genes to our kids. Based on how we cope with different traumas. Our biology changes. And so that's why it is, you know, Joey, you talk about your mother now in retrospect, understanding she was depressed and then coping yourself and then Danielle. But she also had, mommy had, had this rage when you guys were just talking, I just want to go back for a second. Mm-hmm. Where you're talking about, you know, it's it's that this this word mood disease popped into my head. In that, I I remember being warned by family members, "Mommy's in a bad mood. Mm. Like, watch out, she's in a bad mood today." So that's why I, I I have such a reaction to the word or the diagnoses of mental illness. Yes. Because for me, it sounds so permanent. Mm. And, and the, and, you know, the idea of a, you know, mood disease is like the common cold. You can't talk it away. If you get a terrible cold, you got to drink plenty of flu- fluids and get a lot of rest. And nobody comes in and says, hey, you know, cut it out. Ab, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstrap, get out of bed. We just accept it. So it's the prejudicial aspect of the disease. If you have a you know kidney stone, mm-hmm. it's not held against you. But but uh, something that's emotional, people tend to to run away. But they don't want to hear it. Yeah, we talk a lot about if you break your leg and you have a cast, no one is going to ask you to climb a flight of stairs. Yeah, or you're but not going to you, set it yourself. But if you have an anxiety disorder, if you have depression, or if you're you know if you're experiencing one of these emotional diseases that we've been talking about. People can't necessarily see it. And so they expect you to climb the flight of stairs. Yeah. And, and that's the challenge. But the idea is to ask for help. That's why we started No Kidding Me Too. If I sound familiar, if you feel me, then ask for help. Mm-hmm. Seek treatment. I have a question for both of you, actually. What is your depression or your anxiety? How do you know you're having it? What does it feel like in your body? Go ahead, Danny. So for me, like, I think the only times I've have had real panic attacks is when I think about death. Mm. Um, and that is a, a heavy heartbeat and heavy breathing. Mm. And, and I, I, I touch myself. I'm like, I'm here, I'm here. And I can, and I can like swing myself into that one real quick, anywhere, anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Total honesty usually happens when I'm on the toilet for some reason. <laughs> I'll just like be thinking of like death and like the the idea of like I'll just be gone and I won't like what what happens like it's mm. it's dark it's weird freaks me out. Other like anxieties it's usually in the gut um, and I really like that we're talking about this because my dad says all the time he's like it's not a brain disease it's a soul sickness because mm-hmm. you you don't feel it in your brain or at least i don't think well you don't people. you don't think oh i'm sad or oh i'm anxious you yeah. often 
feel something and then it's like oh I know what that is now that is but yeah other anxieties it's like my body gets really warm like very faint shakiness depending on the severity of it and then this knot in my gut and in my stomach which is why I really like that episode where you guys talked about where you feel it and it's in your gut well you know the gut is your second brain yeah which is so fascinating that's like the anxiety the depression is like I just feel nothing yeah okay what about for you Joey how does it feel in your body it's like the top of my stomach it's not in my stomach it's like you know around my heart Mm. it's a it's in the center like closer to your sternum yeah yeah Yeah. that's what it is (laughs) I I couldn't pick a sternum out in the lineup um (laughs) But because uh, we've often yeah. talked to men who say that when they talk about their experience or physical experience of anxiety or depression, it's not uncommon for men to feel it differently than women. I think my anxiety was energy when I was young. It mobilized me to get things done. So it felt like uh, adrenaline for you. Yeah. When that feeling would overcome me, I would make phone calls. Uh, when I was talking to people, I, I found myself walking back and forth in place. I discovered um, a, a machine 30 years ago that I had. It just broke about five years ago, and I got another one, uh, the elliptical. Oh, yeah. And, and I would get on the elliptical, and I would have meetings on the elliptical. The depression, it, it was only when I became addicted to painkillers, Vicodin, that it really exasperated my depression. It wasn't until years of treatment and cleaning my system out that I that I understood that my depression was much worse uh, because of all of the external uh, drugs that I was putting in my body. Hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. the painkillers are also downers, you know. So your system's already depressed and then the chemicals are further depressing. Yeah, because you don't realize that because in the beginning, it makes you feel good. So, right. you know, it's like alcohol. They, they call uh, alcohol a depressant, but gee, I feel good. And, but then the bottom of it comes in. And so is this a conversation the two of you have? A, like, is this in your family now? Is this something you guys talk a lot about? We talk about it with all of the kids. I mean, a portion of it was like a family heirloom that I've gifted to my children. To go back to talking my about my mother, my mother was a victim of incest and abuse. And so she hated men. And I was confident until I hit puberty. And then I became the enemy too. Mm. And so I always felt that the, my mother's love, which was suffocating, but it was also conditional. And it wasn't until I met Nancy, Na- Daniela's mom, my wife, that I experienced what unconditional love was, and I didn't want any part of it. I was always waiting for Nancy for the first 20 years to turn into my mother, mm. and she never, and she didn't. And it was like, well, yeah, that shoe's going to fall someday. Here we are 30 years later. And I finally understood that Nancy was the mother I always wanted. Mm. Wow. Hey, Joey, what do you think the effect of being a celebrity or being in the entertainment industry had on your mental health? You know, the craft had a lot of effect. But the idea of celebrity, I, I discovered that 
celebrity is it's like valueless. It's it's got all of these calories and no uh, <laughs> it's icing protein. There's nothing substantial uh, right. that's going to build muscle. But you know, creatively through the idea of of creating characters that I sublimated unconsciously through the way I was trained that I could use parts of of my soul and put mm -hmm. them into the characters I was playing and I was treating myself. I mean, in the documentary, when I asked Dr. Irvin, did I make myself nuts by manipulating my brain into these, you know, thinking these, these creative realities and, you know, evoking emotion. He said that I actually saved myself yeah. through, you know, yeah. letting off steam. When I started going to acting school, I was my last year of high school. And right away, I discovered that having these emotions were highly rewarded. Yes. I don't know if I mentioned that one of the reasons why I wanted to be an actor was I wanted to get laid. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wanted to meet girls. <laughs> In acting class, you know, if I did a scene and uh, I evoked some kind of emotion, sometimes this, these emotions started pouring out of me. I didn't know where they came from. And I think that had to do with anxiety, maybe. Let's give you a chance here to talk about your new baby, which is your podcast, No Kidding Me Too. We heard the first episode and it was fantastic, but why don't you tell our listeners what they can expect from future episodes so that they will run and subscribe because they should. Well, these are conversations that become revealing, like Daniela interviewing me on the first one and the listener getting insight in, into the, it's almost like acting into their own character, watching a character that you identify on television with or in the movies and, uh, you know, to be able to identify with the bruised and damaged bits that were holding me back and how I've learned to regulate and manage my emotional disease when it comes a visiting. And so then Danny came up with this idea and she said, you know, it'd be really interesting to talk to people that you wouldn't think had issues. Uh, and the idea of talking about it openly and interviewing celebrities that on paper look like everything's great. And then they share their, their history and their experiences, whether they personally went through something or some, a loved one, you know, and we, we also talk about their careers and what they're doing and their children and life in general. And hopefully it, it's uh, entertaining. It's, you know, it's very much like what we're doing right now. Hmm. I know you guys are going to be talking to Marsha Gay Harden and Chaz Palminteri. I think that, who else did you Bonnie, think? Bonnie, Bonnie Hunt, which oh, I'm very oh, excited about. Bonnie that Hunt, one. she's great. Yeah, yeah. She's a, she was amazing. And the, you know, and the key is, emotional intimacy. The key uh -huh. is, is to, you know, putting ourselves emotionally on the line for the listener so they can they can have insight into their own souls and 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 build up the stamina to ask for help if they need it. That's so great. Just putting the vocabulary out there too, I think, particularly like we said for men but even for a woman, just putting out this emotional vocabulary, like this is what I'm feeling and this is how it feels. 
you know, being anxious, having depression, these are human conditions. You don't get to get out of this life alive. We all experience disease. There's not one person ever in the history of humanity who hasn't experienced it on some level. And so we should be able to talk about it. It's really the only thing we all have in common. So it's the only thing we should be talking about. It is our suffering in a sense, you know, something that we all have in common, but also it's developing this comfort in talking about it because so many times people don't even know that something is wrong. Or if you think that because there is something wrong that you're broken or something's wrong with you. And that's really what we try to do is Anxiety sisters don't go it alone. We are all in this together. We are all experiencing forms of these emotions and these diseases all the time. And if we could just talk about it openly and honestly, when Maggie and I were were in our 20s and we were in college together and we had terrible anxiety and depression, and you know, we there was no vocabulary to talk about that. Yeah, the other thing is, is that historically we erase the truth. We only talk about the good bits. Also, Mm -hmm. in our culture, we wait for uh, us to break down Mm -hmm. before they can try to make us better, you know. Yes, we wait till we're sick. (laughs) Yeah, so the idea of of teaching this, this, having this conversation begin in preschool. Exactly. Yoga and and mindful meditations and talking about anxiety, what it looks like, what it feels like. So some of these things aren't some great surprise when when you you know you're 16 years old and all this stuff is is percolating in, inside your brain and you don't know what to do with it because you think you're different you don't know that other people are going through this or Absolutely. feel this way mm. and demonizing it over the years so that we've gotten to this point right mm-hmm. where you know in the 70s they started closing down all of the state run mental hospitals so now 90% of all of your chronically mentally ill are in prison. Uh, yeah. They're in- Or know, on the street. Incarcerated. Yeah. And, and most of those people, uh, what is it? 120,000 uh, Americans, homeless Americans are veterans. Before you go, I have a question for each of you that I would like to, sh- if you'd share with our audience, can you tell our listeners something that each of you does other than meds or therapy to take care of your mental health? get a lot of dogs. (laughs) We've done Um, a podcast on that. Yeah. So for me right now, it's, it's honestly just like taking my dog for a walk or to the dog park. And I like the dog park because it forces me to be social. You know, I have conversations with other people, even if they're just small talk conversations, I almost never bring my phone So I just watch my dog. I just play with my dog. I'm just in a moment with him. The other thing I like to do, which I haven't done in a while because of this past year, is yoga, mainly aerial yoga, um, which is the one with the silk, is really fun because more than regular yoga, when I do aerial yoga, I'm more present in the moment because I'm like flying in the air. I'm like five feet off the ground. And it's like, I have to focus on where I have to put my leg in this because <laughs> otherwise I will fall. But the dog is, is seriously like incredibly just like petting him. Like mm-hmm. it's, I look at him and I just cry sometimes. Like, are you, David, come here. Like, look how cute. <laughs> <I'm here. laughs> like, how can Aww. you not? Hi buddy. Hey there. That's oh my God, he's beautiful. 
like it just makes me feel better and and i haven't done it i've been bad with the my white friend. the white dog is david's pet <laughs> david's friend herbie hi herbie Aww. writing also helps too yeah writing it, just like journaling because it's i just get it out of my head sometimes just like breaking down a little and like just mm. sobbing and letting it all out and then i immediately feel so much better yeah, a good a good cry is fantastic for your soul. It, it can be a real release. We actually talk in our interview with Marsha how we should have crying benches. Apparently, in Japan, they have laughing benches. Yeah, and you just sit and you laugh. We need crying ones. Like, oh, I have a, I have a sofa in my house that definitely is the crying bench of our yeah. house. <laughs> so like, they need to be crying benches in Central Park. And you just sit and cry. Like, it just feels better. It does. Well, you get. I mean, some of the same release that you get in an orgasm you get when you cry believe that and also also laughing and smiling even just simply smiling it it creates dopamine and serotonin mm-hmm. you I got don't know it. Why it does but it does uh, i guess it's my turn everything yeah. that daniela said i i agree with lots of dogs uh, what did we have 10 dogs when i right before i went to rehab and joey you found like the dogs were very comforting for you his best friend in the world yeah. was his dog bogey i mean i when i was finally able to like go to meetings in New York, I'd have to bring Bogey with me. So mm-hmm. I guess he was the therapy dog before yeah. we had therapy dogs, but I got hit by a car back in May. And oh. so, you know, I, I have a knee injury, back injury. And, oh. and and so as a result, I can't do the kind of walking that, that I was, you know, I'm still working at healing and rebuilding those muscles. Yeah. Uh, so that's an issue because that's my main source of mindfulness adjustment. I'm too old to jog anymore. Instead of instead of jogging, it's, it's five miles of walking that really feel better, makes my day feel yes. much, much better. The idea of being around people less is very comforting to me. Mm. When I was a young man... I was incredibly anxious about being alone with myself. I, I was always afraid like I was going to miss out on something. So I was always getting out there, you know, being around people, anesthetizing my, my anxiety with people. Mm. The last 10 years, I've, I've learned, and I don't know if part of this is old age, but I've, I've actually learned to be comfortable in my own skin and just being having this alone time it, it, it doesn't bother me like it used to mm. and the idea of you know having to go out and see people and put clothes on and get, I, you know, I don't know I don't know if I'm turning it to Howard Hughes but uh, <laughs> but I find some comfort in it you know that yeah. I can take a walk around this neighborhood here yeah and, and barely even see anybody to have to say hello to them I think I got that from you because I used to be like so fun and go out and do all the partying and, and go to the bars and just dance. I didn't even have to drink. It makes me think of this Gatsby quote, the, you know, I love large parties. They're so intimate at small parties. There isn't any privacy. Oh. Like you can hide behind all the people Yeah, and you're just yeah. this fun person and blah, blah, blah. And it's like over the past couple of years, especially now with COVID, it's like not going out and like part of it's like, I just, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want anyone to ask me how I am because I'm not good. 
you know, mm-hmm. like I just don't want to talk. I don't want to have to pretend anymore. And da, 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 da. I think a lot of people are feeling nervous about coming out of this pandemic because we're all very, we've gotten very used to being in our, you know, our homes and having very, our world is pretty small right now in terms of where we go and who we see. Oh yeah. We have a lot of people in the community that are really concerned about that. Yeah. I'm, I am signing up for my shot right now. And, and part of me, my first thought was like, oh, if I get a shot, does that does that mean I have to go out and about again? <laughs> I mean, there's a, uh, you know. Uh, yes, I, I think- no, you do not have to. <laughs> yeah. I hope to Christ not. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But I also think as we get older, we tend to become more comfortable in, in our own skins and more comfortable with just people we feel an intimacy with. I think for me, like get, going into my fifties, this, I mean, I really have felt for the first time in my entire life, a real sense of who I am. Abby, I got to say, I'm really impressed because I'm just almost in my seventies and I've still hasn't figured it out. Oh, you have Joey, because <laughs> all your wisdom comes through with that, with the film you made, no kidding me too. And this podcast, the two of you are doing, and this relationship you have with obviously all of your children yeah, and wife. I mean, you have. Yeah, no, you've definitely figured it out. You have figured it all out. I mean, we're Absolutely. we're never we're always changing. We're always learning more. I hope and always evolving. Somebody once said to me, "You want to be right, or you want to be happy?" Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh shit, can I have? I, I want to be both. No, no, we no. It's either or. This is an either or. <laughs> Yeah, we all do. Thank you to our guests today, Daniela and Joey Pantoliano, for being so generous with their time. This has been such a wonderful conversation for for Mags and me and for our listeners. We know they're going to go right now and subscribe to this podcast, which is called No Kidding, Me Too. You can get it on Audible and Spotify and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. We love the connection that is so honest and genuine between this father and daughter and we know you guys are going to feel that way too. So hurry, hurry, hurry. Go subscribe to this podcast and enjoy. So thank you for tuning in today. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback, especially compliments, questions, or ideas for a new podcast, please email us. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we would be so, so, so grateful if you could leave us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify or just about anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We're on Audible now, Mags. Tell them we're on Audible. Yes, please leave us a review on Audible. Abs, are there anything anything else we have to announce? Uh, hmm. Anything now else? that I, I have a little crush on Joey Pants now, I'm announcing that. Uh, well, he is easy to have a crush on. What a, what a really wonderful, warm, and generous man. Exactly. He's, he's just, and he's using his platform to do such good stuff. And, we're, and his daughter is amazing. You would never oh know that she's so young. She is really very wise. Definitely. So thank you for joining us. And remember... Anxiety Anxiety sisters, don't go it alone. alone. (laughs) We cannot do that together. I don't. You've been listening to the Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.